Chapter Twenty Two of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Twenty Two, The Meadows in Winter. Hester was tired of her snow boots before she saw them. She had spent more trouble on them than they were worth, and it was three weeks yet before they came. It was now past the middle of February, rather late in the season for snow boots to arrive, but then there was Margaret's consolatory idea that they would be ready for the next year's snow. It is not too late yet, said Mr. Hope. There is skating every day in the meadow. It will soon be over, so do not lose your opportunity. Come, let us go today. Not unless the sun shines out, said Hester, looking with a shiver up at the windows. Yes, today, said Edward, because I have time today to go with you. You have seen me quiz other skaters. You must go and see other skaters quiz me. What points of your skating do they get hold of to quiz? asked Margaret. Why, I hardly know. We shall see. Is it so very good, then? No, I believe the worst of my skating is that it is totally devoid of every sort of expression. That is just the true account of it, he continued, as his wife laughed. I do not square my elbows, nor set my coat flying, nor rear, but neither is there any grace. I just go straight on, and as far as I know, nobody ever bids any other body look like me. So you bid your own family come and look at you, but how are your neighbors to quiz you if they do not observe you? Oh, that is only a bit of an anaesthesis for effect. My last account is the true one, as you will see. I shall come in for you at twelve. By twelve the sun had shone out, and the ladies, booted, furred, and veiled, were ready to encounter the risks and rigors of the ice and snow. As they opened the hall door, they met on the steps a young woman, who was just raising her hand to the knocker. Her errand was soon told. Please, ma'am, I heard that you wanted a servant. Is that true? said Hester. Where do you come from, from any place near, so that you can call again? Surely, said Margaret. It is Mr. Enderby's Susan. Yes, miss. I have been living with Mrs. Enderby. Mrs. Enderby will give me a good character, ma'am. Why are you leaving her, Susan? Oh, ma'am, only because she is gone. Gone? Where? What do you mean? Gone to live at Mrs. Rollins, ma'am. You didn't know? It was very sudden, but she moved yesterday, ma'am, and we were paid off, except Phoebe who stays to wait upon her. I am left in charge of the house, ma'am, so I can step here again, if you wish it, some time when you are not going out. Do so, any time this evening, or before noon tomorrow. Did you know of this, Edward? said his wife as they turned the corner. Not I. I think Mrs. Rowland is mistaken in saying that nothing can be kept secret in Deerbrook. I do not believe anybody has dreamed of the poor old lady giving up her house. Very likely Mrs. Rowland never dreamed of it herself. Till the day it was done, observed Margaret. Oh, yes, she did, said Mr. Hope. I understand now the old lady's agitation, and the expression she dropped about last times nearly a month ago. By the by, that was the last time you saw her, was it not? Yes, the next day when I called, I was told that she was better, and that she would send when she wished to see me again to save me the trouble of calling when she might be asleep. 
"'She has been asleep or engaged every time I have inquired at the door of late,' observed Margaret. "'I hope she is doing nothing but what she likes in this change of plan.' "'I believe she finds most peace and quiet in doing what her daughter likes,' said Mr. Hope. "'Here, Margaret, where are you going? This is the gate. "'I believe you have not your way about yet.' "'I will follow you immediately,' said Margaret. "'I will only go a few steps to see if this can really be true.' Before the hopes had half crossed the meadow, Margaret joined them, perfectly convinced. The large bills in the closed windows of Mrs. Enderby's house bore to be let or sold, too plainly to leave any doubt. As the skating season was nearly over, all the skaters in Deerbrook were eager to make use of their remaining opportunities, and the banks of the brook and of the river were full of their wives, sisters, and children. Sidney Gray was busy cutting figures of eight before the eyes of his sisters, and in defiance of his mother's careful warnings not to go here, and not to venture there, and not to attempt to cross the river. Mr. Hope begged his wife to engage Mrs. Gray in conversation, so that Sidney might be left free for a while, and promised to keep near the boy for half an hour, during which time Mrs. Gray might amuse herself with watching other and better performers further on. As might have been foreseen, however, Mrs. Gray could not talk of nothing but Mrs. Enderby's removal, of which she had not been informed till this morning, and which she had intended to discuss in Hester's house on leaving the meadows. It appeared that Mrs. Enderby had been in agitated and variable spirits for some time, apparently wishing to say something that she did not say, and expressing a stronger regard than ever in her old friends a regular sign that had come act of tyranny or of rudeness might speedily be expected from mrs rowland the greys were in the midst of their speculations as to what might be coming to pass when sydney burst in with the news that mrs enderby's house was to be let or sold mrs grey had mounted her spectacles first to verify the fact and then sent alice over to inquire and had immediately put on her bonnet and cloak, and called on her old friend at Mrs. Rowland's. She had been told at the door that Mrs. Enderby was too much fatigued with her removal to see any visitors. So I shall try again to-morrow, concluded Mrs. Gray. How does Mr. Hope think her spasms have been lately? asked Sophia. He has not seen her for nearly a month, so I suppose they are better. I fear that does not f follow, my dear said mrs gray winking some people are afraid of your husband's politics you are aware and i know mrs rowland has been saying and doing things on that score which you had better not hear about i have my reasons for thinking that the old lady's spasms are far from being better but mrs rowland has been so busy crying up from those drops of hers that cure everything and praising her maid that i have a great idea your husband will not be admitted to see her till she is past cure and her daughter thoroughly frightened. Mr. Hope had never been forgiven, you know, for marrying into our connection so decidedly, and I really don't know what would have been the consequence. If, as we once fancied likely, Mr. Philip and Margaret had thought of each other, Margaret was happily out of hearing. A fresh blow had just been struck. She had looked to Mrs. Enderby for information on the subject which forever occupied her, and on which she felt that she must know more or sink. She had been much disappointed at being refused admission to the old lady, time after time. Now all hope of free access and private conversation was over, 
she had set it as an object before her to see mrs enderby and learn as much of philip's affair as his mother chose to offer now this object was lost and nothing remained to be done or hoped for it was too certain that mrs enderby's friends would not be allowed unrestrained intercourse with her in her daughter's house for some little time margaret had been practising the device so familiar to the unhappy of carrying off mental agitation by bodily exertion she was now eager to be doing something more active than walking by mrs grey's side listening to ideas which she knew just as well without their being spoken mrs grey's thoughts about mrs rowland and mrs rowland's ideas of mrs grey might always be anticipated by those who knew the ladies hester and margaret had learned to think of something else while the sort of comment was proceeding and to resume their attention when it came to an end margaret had withdrawn from it now and was upon the ice with sydney why cousin margaret you don't mean that you are afraid of walking on the ice cried sydney balancing herself on his heels mr hope what do you think of that he called out as hope skimmed past them cousin margaret is afraid of going on the ice what does she think can happen to her asked mr hope his last words vanishing in the distance it looks so gray and clear and dark sydney pooh it is thick enough between you and the water you would have to get down a good way i can tell you before you could get drowned but it is so slippery what of that what else did you expect with ice if you tumble you can get up again i have been down three times this morning well that is a great consolation certainly which way do you want me to walk oh anyway across the river to the other bank if you like you will remember next summer when we come this way in a boat that you have walked across the very place that is true said margaret i will go if sophia will go with me there is no use in asking any of them said sydney they stand dawdling and looking till their lips and noses are all blue and red and they are never up to any fun i will try as far as that pole first said margaret i should not care if they had not swept away all the snow here so as to make the ice look so gray and slippery that pole said sydney why that pole is put up on purpose to show that you must not go there don't you see how the ice is broken all round it oh i know how it is that you are so stupid and cowardly to-day you lived in birmingham all your winters and you've never been used to walk on the ice i'm glad you have found that out at last now look i am really going what a horrid sensation she cried as she cautiously put down one foot before the other on the transparent floor she did better when she reached the middle of the river where the ice had been ground by the skates now you would get on beautifully said sydney if you would not look at your feet why can't you look at the people and the trees opposite suppose i should step into a hole there are no holes trust me for the holes what do you flinch so for the ice always cracks so in one part or another i thought you have been shot so did i said she laughing but sydney we are a long way from both banks to be sure that is what we came for margaret looked somewhat timidly around her an indistinct idea fitted through her mind how glad she should be to be accidentally innocently drowned and scarcely recognizing it she proceeded you get on well shouted mr hope as he flew past on his return up the river there now said sydney presently it is a very little way to the bank 
I will just take a trip up and down, and come for you again, to go back, and then we will try whether we can't get Cousin Hester over, when she sees you have been safe there and back. This was a sight which Hester was not destined to behold. Margaret had an ignorant partiality for the ice, which was the least grey, and when left to herself she made for a part which looked less like glass. Nobody particularly heeded her. She slipped and recovered herself. She slipped again and fell, hearing the ice crack under her every time she attempted to rise. She found the place too slippery to keep her feet. Next there was a hole under her. She felt the cold water. She was sinking through. She caught at the surrounding edges. They broke away. There was a cry from the bank, just as the death-cold water seemed to close all around her, and she felt the ice like a heavy weight above her. One thought of joy, it will soon be all over now, was the only experience she was conscious of. In two minutes more she was breathing the air again, sitting on the bank, and helping to wring out her clothes. How much may pass in two minutes? Mr. Hope was coming up the river again, when he saw a bustle on the bank, and slipped off his skates, to be ready to be of service. He ran as others ran, and arrived just when a dark blue dress was emerging from the water, and then a dripping fur tippet, and then the bonnet, making the gradual revelation to him who it was. For one instant he covered his face with his hands, half hiding an expression of agony so intense that a bystander who saw it said, Take comfort, sir. She has been in but a very short time. She'll recover, I don't doubt. Hope leaped to the bank and received her from the arms of the men who had drawn her out. The first thing she remembered was hearing, in the lowest tone she could conceive of, Oh God, my Margaret, and a groan which she felt rather than heard. Then there were many warm and busy hands about her head, removing her bonnet, shaking out her hair, and chafing her temples. She sighed out, Oh dear, and she heard that soft groan again. In another moment she roused herself, sat up, saw Hope's convulsed countenance, and Sidney standing motionless and deadly pale. I shall never forgive myself, she heard her brother exclaim. Oh, I am very well, said she, remembering all about it. The air feels quite warm. Give me my bonnet, I can walk home. Can you? The sooner the better, then, said Hope, raising her. She could stand very well, but the water was everywhere, dripping from her clothes. Many bystanders employed themselves in wringing them out and in the meanwhile Margaret inquired for her sister, and hoped she did not know of the accident. Hester did not know of it, for Margaret happened to be the first to think of any one but herself. Sidney was flying off to report, when she was stopped and recalled. You must go to her, Edward, said Margaret, or she will be frightened. You can do me no good. Sidney will go home with me, or anyone here, I am sure. Twenty people stepped forward at the word, Margaret parted with her heavy fur tippet, accepted a long cloth cloak from a poor woman, to throw over her wet clothes, selected Mr. Jones. The butcher, for her escort, sent Sidney forward with directions to Morris to warm her bed, and then she set forth homeward. Mr. Hope and half a dozen more would see her across the ice, and by the time she had reached the other bank, she was able to walk very much as if nothing had happened. Mr. Hope had perfectly recovered his composure before he reached the somewhat distant pond where Hester and the Greys were watching. 
sliding as good as could be seen within twenty miles. It had reached perfection like anything else in Deerbrook. What? Tired already? said Hester to her husband. What have you done with your skates? Oh, I have left them somewhere there, I suppose. He drew her arm within his own. Come, my dear, let us go home. Margaret is gone. Gone? Why? Is not she well? It is not so very cold. She has got wet, and she has got wet, and she has gone home to warm herself. Hester did not wait to speak again to the Greys when she comprehended that her sister had been in the river. Her husband was obliged to forbid her walking so fast, and assured her all the way that there was nothing to fear. Hester reproached him for his coolness. "'You need not reproach me,' said he. "'I shall never cease to reproach myself for letting her go where she did.' And yet his heart told him that he had only acted according to his deliberate design of keeping aloof from all Margaret's pursuits and amusements that were not shared with her sister. And as for the risk, he had seen fifty people walking across the ice this very morning. Judging by the event, however, he very sincerely declared that he should never forgive himself for having left her. When they reached home, Margaret was quite warm and comfortable, and her hair dying rapidly under Morse's hands. Hester was convinced that everybody might dine as usual. Margaret herself came downstairs to tea, and the only consequence of the accident seemed to be that Charles was kept very busy opening the door to inquiries how Miss Ibbotson was this evening. It made Hope uneasy to perceive how much Margaret remembered of what had passed around her in the midst of the bustle of the morning. If she was still aware of some circumstances that she mentioned, might she not retain others, the words extorted from him, the frantic action which he now blushed to remember? Brother, said she, what was the meaning of something that I heard someone say, just as I sat up on the bank? There is a bulk for a doctor. He is balked of a body in his own house. Oh, Margaret, cried her sister, who sat looking at her all the evening as if they had been parted for ten years. You dreamed that. It was a fancy. Think what a state your poor head was in. It may have a few strange imaginations left in it still. May it not, Edward? This is not one, he replied. She heard very accurately. What did they mean? There is a resort abroad without me, arising out of the old prejudice about dissection. Some of my neighbors think that dissecting is the employment and the passion of my life, and that I rob the churchyard as often as anybody is buried. Oh, Edward, how frightful, how ridiculous. It is very disagreeable, my dear. I am taunted with this wherever I go. What is to be done? We must wait till the prejudices against me die out. But I see that we shall have to wait some time, for before one suspicion is given up, another rises. Since that unhappy election, said Hester, sighing, what a strange thing it is that men like you should be no better treated. Here is Mrs. Enderby taken out of your hands, and your neighbors suspecting and slandering you, whose commonest words they are not worthy to repeat. My dear Hester, said he, in a tone of serious remonstrance, that is rather a wife-like way of putting the case, to be sure, said Margaret, smiling. But in as far as it is true, the matter surely ceases to be strange. 
Good men do not come into the world to be what the world calls fortunate, but to be something far better. The best men do not use the means to be rich, to be praised by their neighbors, to be out of the way of trouble. And if they will not use the means, it does not become them, nor their wives to be discouraged at losing their occupation, or being slandered or suspected as dangerous people. Edward's smile thanked her, and so did her sister's kiss. But Hester looked grave again when she said, I suppose we shall know sooner or later why it is that good people are not to be happy here, and that the more they love one another, the more struggles and sorrows they have to undergo. Do we not know something of it already, said Hope, after a pretty long pause? It is not to put us off from the too vehement desire of being what we commonly call happy. By the time higher things become more interesting to us than this, we begin to find that it is given to us to put our own happiness under our feet. In reaching forward to something better, we become, by natural consequence, practiced in this, forgetful of the things that are behind. And if the practice be painful, what then? We shall not quarrel with it, surely, unless we are willing to exchange what we have gained for money and praise and animal spirits, shutting in an abject mind. Oh, no, no, said Hester, but yet there are troubles. She stopped short on observing Margaret's quivering lip. There are troubles I own, which it is difficult to classify and interpret, said her husband. We can only struggle through them, taking the closet, heed our innocence. But these affairs of ours, these mistakes of my neighbors, are not of that sort. They are intelligible enough, and need not therefore trouble as much. Hope was right in his suspicion of the accuracy of Margaret's memory. His tones, his words, had sunk deep into her heart, her innocent heart, in which everything that entered it became safe and pure as itself. Oh, God, my Margaret, sounded there like music. What a heart he has, she thought. I was very selfish to fancy him reserved, and I am glad to know that my brother loves me so. If it is such a blessing to be his sister, how happy must Hester be, in spite of everything. God has preserved my life, and he has given these two to each other, and oh, how he has shown me that they love me. I will rouse myself, and try to suffer less. End of chapter 22